true leader is is someone who has paid a price. A true leader has scars, you know? And I, I, I sometimes want to ask a guy, you know, show me your scars. Do we need clergy today on In the Shadow of the Cross? Welcome back to In the Shadow of the Cross. I am Lauren Rosser, and once again, I'm here with my friends Jim Durkin. Good evening. And Michael Harden. Hello. Y- you have any good drinks for us tonight, Michael? No, I've, I've had just a whiskey sour tonight here. <laughs> there you go. All right. It's better than what I've got. I've just got a bottle of water. <laughs> Not very exciting. But uh, today we come to you yet with a uh, another soft subject, I say sarcastically. Um, I saw an article this week that was titled, Do We Need Clergy? And I thought that would be a good topic to tackle tonight. Now, I have to confess, I have been on both extremes of that debate. There was a season in my life where I was like, yes, absolutely hardcore. Yes, we need clergy. And you're crazy if you think otherwise. And I've been on the other side where I thought, absolutely not. No way. No how. Me and Jesus. I don't need a teacher. I'm good. And uh, so I have been on both extremes. I'm not going to tilt my hand yet on where we stand. I have a feeling my two brothers here are going to probably end up uh, saying much of my point of view. But uh, I want to go ahead and hand it over to you guys to kick it off because I, I'm, a, I'm a politician here and I want you guys to say the first mean scary things. <laughs> oh my gosh. So the, the question is, who's the we? Do we need clergy? Who's the we? Uh, good, uh, good question. I'm assuming they meant like average Christian or layman. Yeah. That's... <laughs> <laughs> well, I, it's an interesting and it, it, it's an interesting question, and and I appreciate what you're saying, Michael. Who is the we that we're talking about? Uh, it's not a question that can be answered yes or no. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it were, this would be a very short podcast. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but do we need clergy? Do we need? I'm assuming. Your uh, the question would be referencing a uh, paid clergy, whether it's uh, full time or part time or whatever. Uh, I'm assuming that also uh, takes into account uh, what typically would be called the head of a local congregation or a church, a pastor or whatever. Um, and. Again, I, do, I don't think you can answer the question yes or no. I think you have to uh, take a look at a wide scope of Scripture, and then you have to come to an understanding of what exactly is that saying. Um, I'm, I'm just going to jump into the deep end here. Uh, <laughs> the Scripture, for instance, it says, Obey those that have the rule over you. I can remember as a young uh, pastor, I quoted from that scripture often. Uh, I quoted from it when uh, I was training uh, leaders uh, under me. 
um, which is a kind of an interesting term, under and over and so on and so forth. But, uh, you know, you know that you have the rule over the people, you know, and, and, you know, you're the one that watches for their soul and you make sure they obey you and, you know, and harping on that. And then if I was talking to somebody who... I had deemed to be rebellious. It's like you have a responsibility to obey your elder and your leader or whatever. And um, so I'm kind of like you, Lauren. I, I probably have been on both sides of the fence more than once. <laughs> Go back and forth. <laughs> but uh, I think, I think uh, and Michael, you'll definitely help us here. I think we have to look at, we can't answer that question uh, in, in in theory, we have to. I think we have to take a look at Scripture and see what Scripture has to say on the subject. So, so when we say clergy, Lauren, let's we we really have to define things. So, first of all, in a liturgical tradition like the Roman Catholic, the Orthodox, the Lutheran, the Anglican, Episcopalian, there is an absolute need for a cleric to celebrate the Eucharist. The Eucharist cannot be celebrated without an ordained clergy person in the line of apostolic succession, okay? Now, if by clergy we mean a program director, somebody that's a business manager, somebody that runs the show, you know, like uh, Brian Houston or, or uh, Franklin Graham or whatever, that's another thing altogether. If we're talking about the Rick Warrens of the world, you know, I mean, what, what do we mean by clergy? And then Jim brought up the big, big, big piece of this. What do we mean by paid clergy? And then what's their role? What's their function? Okay, what do they do? What are we hiring them for? Uh, which, again, brings up the other critical question that Jim raised. What's the relationship of clergy to congregation? Because Jesus at this point, <clears throat> and I think this is where modern Christendom gets it all backwards, if modern Christianity took Jesus' view of leadership seriously, the church would not do this whole celebrity thing that they're doing. So... There's a lot of intertwined questions. And then that also leads to the question of why do we need clergy if we need them? And do we need clergy education? And if we need clergy education, what ought it consist of? You know, and how do we go about supporting those? How do we recognize if a person has a call? And if, they, if we recognize as a congregation they have a call, are we willing to support them? You know, I mean, there's so many uh, questions here. I love this because that that's exactly what I was hoping for when when we were looking at this topic because uh, it's not this clear black and white issue there there's so many nuances to this issue and like you said it depends on how you define it what you're talking about now I can tell you in the article it was it was clearly from a Protestant perspective a mm -hmm. Protestant evangelical perspective looking at pastors as clergy but I don't necessarily want to just stay in that arena. Um, I want to open this up for all the, the different avenues that, that you both brought up because I think there is so much here that needs to be unpacked because um, so many of us, like myself, before I connected with other people throughout life, we've lived in kind of a, a, a one view of Christianity. And so we've had just one perspective of this is what clergy is. And then when I was exposed to many other believers outside of my own camp and tradition, um, that's where my, my perspective began to unfold. 
And so let's just start with um, how would you define from a, a crucified, cruciform, Christ-like sense what leadership is? Who are you addressing? E- either one of you. <laughs> Go ahead, Michael. Well, the, the first thing is, is that um, Jesus makes clear that we are not to value leadership positions and roles. James and John wanted to be first. Jesus says, you don't get it takes a, a child in his lap, says, look, man, you have to be willing to get humble enough to, to welcome pesky little children into your life, kind of thing, you know. Um, he reverses, uh, he says, the greatest among you will be the servant of all. Well, then the church turns around and does this, oh, we're going to do servant leadership, and it's all BS. The servant leadership is just another way of saying, we're going to be wolves in sheep's clothing. We're going to have authority by saying we don't have authority, but we're going to have it, we're going to have lots of it. Um so if you think of, of, of clergy in terms of someone as an authority in the congregation and you think of it and frame it in terms of Jesus' teachings, then I think you're looking at someone like a St. Francis who refused honors and titles, you know, refused to, to walk that, that path, okay? But you certainly cannot speak of modern clergy that way. Modern, for modern clergy, it's all upward mobility because the higher up you go, the more money you make, the better the insurance plan you have for your family, on and on and on and on. So it's it's better to get up in the world and, and leave these small struggling churches to the seminaries and these these young bucks that want to make that want to be kingdom builders. But really, um, when you get to the book of Acts, that becomes a major issue. It becomes a major issue in the Pauline churches. You know, how do we lead these congregations? Who's leading them? How do we trust the Spirit to lead these congregations? How do we lead congregations in the third and fourth generations after the apostles are gone and we no longer have their living voice? How do we lead a congregation? And I mean, it's, it's, it's fluid. It's always fluid. But I think there are several things that you can take away uh, throughout the history of the church with regard to to clergy, and I think that it's not a one-size-fits-all answer. I, I'll tip my hand a little bit that uh, I, I agree that it is definitely not a one-size-fits-all answer, and that's the problem is um, if you have... Uh, when Lily and I first met, one of the things God plopped into my heart was don't compare your marriage to other people because your two unique individuals and two unique individuals coming together are going to be completely different than other two unique individuals coming together. And how much more in the church when you have a whole bunch of unique individuals coming together in a given location, they're going to have their own sets of issues, their own sets of challenges. And so trying to come up with some kind of cookie cutter answer that you slap onto every congregation everywhere or every gathering everywhere is ridiculous. And so I think that alone goes along with with what you're saying, Michael. That that there is not a one size fits all, but definitely the uh, the uh, heavy handed upward mobility mentality does not fit the the mold that that Jesus or the pattern that that Jesus showed us. Yeah, there's not there's not one model of clergy in the New Testament. There are multiple models, you know, depending on the situation. But I really think it's so. So just just some examples. So in America, you're you're out in your normal Protestant tradition. Uh, if you if you want to be a pastor, you want to be a clergy person. You either go to Bible school, and the goal there is to learn as much as you can about the Bible, so that when you get out to the church, you know more than the people in the church. It's just a form of Gnosticism. Or you go to seminary. The problem with seminary is is that most seminaries are about 100, 150 years ahead of the church. 
And so these young Turks go into seminary with their, you know, going to save the world. Jesus called me. I'm an evangelist. And then they realize the Bible isn't what everybody says it was, and their faith starts <laughs> falling apart. And by the time they leave seminary, what do they have? They have enough new knowledge, you know, all this other stuff that they can go save the, the world. Um, so you have that, and then of course you've you've got your uh, you've got your con artists everywhere that are full of the Holy Spirit, so to speak. So it's it's a mess. It, it, it's a great question. I I'm yeah I'm I've been baffled by it all day meditating on it. I kind of uh, think of uh, what you're calling the con artists as as self-appointed for whatever reason. Maybe they have low self-esteem, and, and they realize that you know if I get in this. Uh, uh, you know, church leadership game here, uh, you know, I can bolster my low self-esteem because all I got to do is preach a good sermon and people slap me on the back and say, hey, good message, you know, oh, yeah. or whatever. But right. I, but I, I want to take off on something that uh, you're saying there. Um, I've, I've used this analogy uh, many times. If, if, if I was a... Um, in a, in a room kind of isolated by myself and I could hear what was going on in the next room. Couldn't see anybody, but I could hear what was going on. And um, in that next room is a, a large family uh, sitting down to the dinner table and they're just having open discussion. It wouldn't take me very long of just listening before I could tell you who the more mature were uh, and not, I'm not talking about by the depth of their voice or something like that, simply by the quality of what they're sharing. Yeah. And, and I think, I think leaders in the church are very similar that way. Um, you can walk into a situation, uh, or, or, or a new church or a new fellowship and sit down and just begin to fellowship with people. And if you've been around this thing, and, and really not just around the, the peripheral of Christianity, but I mean, you've been into it. John says it this way. He says, I write to you little children because your sins are forgiven. I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you've overcome the wicked one. And I think there are, you know, I think there are fathers in the faith, not because they've been a Christian for 40 years or 50 years, not not because uh, somebody said, oh, I think you're a father, but because they've known him. Mm -hmm. You asked the question, Lauren, you know, in, in a cruciform life. When you have known the Lord, you receive from him things that are for the body of Christ. And you don't have to have a pulpit in order to share those. You don't have to have a, a church building and, a, and you know, a salary and whatever. You just sit down and you begin to talk to people and they're like, hey, I'm getting something, I'm getting some life out of you. Are you a leader? Are you, you know, are you a pastor? Are you a whatever title? And it's like, no, I'm not any title. I'm just a brother who's been around for a few years. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, and that's actually was my thinking is that basically leadership is, is nothing more than somebody who's further down the road than you are. 
in in some area. It could be in loving and care for others. It could be in understanding the scriptures and in the study. Michael's up to his eyeballs in, in study and in, in depth in scriptures where I, I will honestly confess I will never be at that place. Um, and so I freely acknowledge Michael is a teacher in the body of Christ. I have no no ands, ifs, or buts about that. Um, Jim, I've always looked to you. That's why I want you guys to answer first. Jim, I've always looked to you as someone who's further down the road. You've been in the pulpit for a long time. You've been out of the pulpit for a long time. You've you've been down roads that I haven't been down, and you were a, a big part in my life of, of walking with Christ. And so to me, the only way you could say there is no, at least no leadership in the church is if you're just a total isolationist, that I'm just uh, just me and Jesus, and, and there's not going to be any anybody who's going to sway my opinion, uh, have any voice in my life. I think if you're going to be in community, um, you have to acknowledge that there is, is leadership. Because just like you said, Jim, you go into a room of people, it doesn't take long to figure out who's who's walked with Jesus and, and fought some battles and, and been through some stuff and gained some understanding in some areas. And uh, and that's also where I take the thing, you know, that the Charismatics um, and a lot of people who had leave, left the institutional church are big on that scripture about, uh, you know, you have no need for anyone to teach you. Um, (laughs) Michael's groaning. And that's the thing is it's like, for me, I I go, Oh my gosh, it's, I, that is talking about in, in terms of knowing that you need to love one another and care and love your neighbor and, and that kind of thing. When it comes to understanding the scriptures, if you think you don't have a need for anyone to teach you, I'm sorry, you're kind of in crazy town because, um, I like how Steve Crosby says, following Jesus is easy. Understanding the scriptures is not. You're picking up an ancient book. So again, I have no problem acknowledging that we need teachers in the body of Christ. And we need elders, people who are further down the road than we are. So that's why for me, just like with you guys, it's not a quick flippant answer of yes, clergy, no clergy. It's it's more how do we define leadership and what does leadership look like? Right. I think one of the one of the things that I wrestle with, I guess you could say, is if the if the three of us were living in a local area, and we decided that with spouses we wanted to get together on a regular basis, weekly or whatever, do we need to appoint one person to be our leader? No. In relationship. That, first of all, the Lord's the head of the church. So as long as we're surrendering ourselves to him and to his wisdom, we become a conglomerate of, of, of our experiences, our relationship with the Lord. We openly share and fellowship with each other. Now, begin to add to that. Wayne Jacobson uh, uses the term friends and friends of friends. And so we begin to bring friends of ours in and introduce them to the group. And it gets bigger. Eventually, we have that number that you were uh, mentioning, I believe, last week, Michael, 24, something Mm -hmm. like that. Okay? Do we need an appointed leader? I don't think so. I really don't think so. I think at any given time, uh, Michael, with the the wisdom and the research and the years that you've given... uh, you become a leader in that group, no matter how small or how large it is, in certain aspects. 
Correct. In certain but aspects. then there are other aspects where it doesn't need the academia. It uh, needs right. something else, and somebody else rises up and is kind of the leader in that. And we all kind of give to that. It's like, no, brother or sister, you take that. And it isn't even spoken. It's just, it's the organic flow that comes out of relationship. And I think it's when we we create these um, models of of well, we now have twenty five, we now have thirty, we now have fifty. We've got to have a, a a pastor, and we've got to have, and then right behind it is we've got to have a youth pastor, and now we've got to have a Sunday school, uh, you know, administrator, and we've got to, you know, and it's it's like we're we're creating a system that I think it's imploding on itself, quite frankly. Uh, I think that's what we're seeing actually in, in the Christian world, the evangelical world right now. Um, because it's not, it's not based on anything real. It's not based on um, relationship. And it's certainly not, it, it's not based on helping people in their relationship with the Lord. It's only helping people in their relationship with the structure so where 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 did things uh go south where did they they really go south so one could say oh gosh you know they really went south at the time of the reformation when uh uh the role of the cleric was um was downgraded the role of the pope or the eucharist was downgraded the role of the pope was upgraded but you, you know even then what was luther's one of Luther and Calvin's biggest complaints: the clergy were not educated. Okay, hmm. they just were not educated. Now, when I was over in Africa, the thing that amazed me were the number of quote young men who quote had a calling from God to preach and teach and teach people how to tithe. And there were these poor, damn Pentecostal pastors in Africa. You know, by the hundreds and thousands. Um, would gather together, and, and I mean, I was over there doing some teaching of them, such as it was, and uh, why are they in the ministry? Because you can make money. It's a way to make a living in Africa. It's a way to make a living. You know, if you, if you can con your congregation and that's in its little corrugated building with its music so loud that everybody's deaf, you know, if you get five bucks a week, well, hell, that's five bucks a week, you know? And... Um, and then the other thing is it, it, it gives, or they think they now have the right to go out and say to anybody, hey, I'm in the ministry, please support me. That's where we get these emails and these Facebook messages all the time. I'm in the, in the, I'm, in the, I'm serving the Lord and please send us this money and we need this. It's like, are you kidding me? I mean, I don't know you. You know, I mean, and so we've got this whole mentality about, quote having a call because because it's seen as a way to make money and i think the same thing is true here in america i mean you got marjo gortner and you got joel olstein you know both of whom are just using the gospel to make insane amounts of money off of them neither one of them were preaching anything like a gospel yeah it's interesting because um for me the tradition i came out of it was almost the opposite where it was expected that if you go into the ministry you're going to be poor 
and so you're you're choosing uh, you know a, a sacrifice of you know that you're that you're going to be poor however i think that mentality has changed because that was that was old school you know back back in the oh, yeah, it was back yeah. in the 80s when i was growing up you know and it, you had the poor struggling baptist ministers and that was kind of right when the mega church era was starting to begin and, and so the prosperity gospel that's right, because I didn't even hear the prosperity gospel until the 90s. And so, I mean, it was on fringe channels at the time in the 80s, but but right. you didn't hear it in, in mainstream. So, And now I've noticed it has very much gone mainstream. So I, I think you're right, that mentality changed where now, because um, I don't know a lot of people who... I mean, I'm sure there are some that exist because there's evil everywhere. But but I, I don't know a lot of people who, when they decide to go into the ministry, they're really thinking, you know, I want to go con people and, and make money and manipulate people and, and that kind of thing. It, it, it seems like it's – I'm talking more here in the U.S. than in than other countries. But I, I don't see that it's like someone says, I want to go out and, and do that and manipulate people and, and try and get rich using the gospel. I find it's something more that they get ensnared by once they get into it, you know, they kind of get into it. And it, it, it's like I heard it said that um, that uh, one person shared his testimony, said that when he was becoming a pastor, his desire was to really help people. But then when he got into it, he found out he was spending more time managing machinery and managing programs than actually helping people. And, and that's kind of what catches a lot of pastors is that then it's almost like you have to sacrifice your heart. Am I going to help people or I'm going to go ahead and go after the machinery? And it seems like that's almost becomes the turning point for a lot of pastors is they go, well, I, I guess I'll go manage the machinery. The machinery pays. Yeah. Pastoral care doesn't pay. Jim, you've, you've been pastored a lot of churches and congregations. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think you're absolutely right. I've, I've met an, an awful lot of uh, pastors over the years that are, are, are in all stages. Some are so caught up now that they don't know they're even caught up. Mm-hmm. Well, this is, this is what you have to do if you're going to be successful. And um, others on the other end, actually I was talking to a, a friend of mine today. And uh, he was just saying, you know, for the first time in a lot of years, I'm actually happy. I'm wow. actually filled with joy. He said, you know, for a lot of years, I was just doing it for the paycheck. And he said, I, I'm, I'm finding that I'm able to return back to the reason I became a pastor in the first place. And that's oh, wow. to be with that's to be with people, you know, and I I, I think there are a, a a good number of people, and this probably gets to a sub uh, something Michael asked in the very beginning. I think there are a good number of people who, however you want to uh, say that, feel the call, and uh, you know it's it's a motivation of their heart. Um, and and their motivation isn't even necessarily to preach or teach. It's just to help people in the journey. And uh, they begin, over time, they begin to compare themselves maybe to others who are doing it a little bit differently. Like you said, Lauren, 
kind of giving in to the machine or whatever or or you know they've got to get out of the independent church that doesn't pay and get into a denominational church that has a retirement plan and you know whatever and and you begin to kind of move that way and and I think it goes all the way back probably to if we do need clergy then how are we training them what is it what is it that we're giving them uh you know in the very beginning to let them know okay this is what it's all about this is what it this is what you're going to meet out there as, as far as temptation but let me draw out of you what's your heart for wanting to get into this in the first place if your heart's right then let's work with that. Let's let's develop that. Yeah, yeah I, I see. Now I'm going to take a different tack, Jim. If if, sure. if somebody came to me and I was a pastor and I said, "Why do you want to go in the ministry?" They said, "I want to help people." I said, "Go." I would tell them, "Go be a social service worker." Yeah. What is it to minister to to dikaione? What what are we serving? In the Reformed tradition, the ministry is defined clearly as ministerium verbi divini, the ministry of the Word of God. The pastor's role is to mediate this message from Scripture to the congregation. Uh, in the liturgical traditions, it's ministering the sacraments, serving the sacraments to the people, feeding them. Okay, so if if somebody says to me, "I want to help people," I like people, I'm going to tell them wrong job. You don't want the ministry. That's not the ministry because the ministry is a call to obedience. The ministry is a call to listen to the voice of God, discern the voice of God, and preach the message, and it will not be well received. This is something you don't get in seminary. When you get out to your congregations and you start preaching your message, it will not be well received. If you are preaching the gospel, it will not be well received. I mean, we're not, you know, and and, um, and again, like I went, when I was in seminary, I think I was really fortunate. I mean, of all the seminaries I could have went to at the time I went, I ended up at a Lutheran pietist school. So it was the emphasis was the head and the heart, both, both. Equal balance. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And during the time I was there, it turned evangelical. And it all became about the mind and program. And there was the, the so-called, quote, heart emphasis. And I, I just despise that. I despise that because it just, but anyway, the so-called heart emphasis of evangelicalism is personal piety. You know, it's, am I willing to not smoke, not drink, not dance, and not be like Michael? You know, basically, you know, um, you know, if I can do those things, why I'm I'm in like Flint with Jesus. So, um, you know, there's um, there's a desperate need for this question to be raised and raised with panels of pastors and theologians, uh, and it dovetails so tightly into last week's conversation. Well, we don't even know what the church of the future is going to look like. I don't, I you know, but do we need people? Bad question. It's not that we need more intellectuals. It's not that we need more people with heart. What we need are people committed to discipleship and committed to nonviolence. If you're not committed to nonviolence, you're not committed to that, then, then it doesn't really matter. But if you're committed to that, everything's going to change in your life, including how you read scriptures, how you engage your congregation, what you're preaching, how you're preaching it, and everything else. So to me, it's that commitment of discipleship, that remember the one thing that holds the whole early church together is not some kind of Christological doctrine, but the absolute commitment to pacifism. 
You don't have that, you don't have anything. And for me, that's precisely where modern Christianity fails, even the Mennonite Anabaptist tradition. Well, it's interesting how you said that you need to be prepared. The, the message, when you preach the gospel, the message you preach won't be received. It's funny, we know that from what Jesus told us. And yet that is nothing that really gets told to anybody going into the ministry because it would make all the churches <laughs> an abysmal failure. Because if, if you're trying to build a denomination or a, a, a congregation and, uh, and, and you're sending people out there preaching the gospel that's going to offend half the people, your, your church building game is over. And, yeah. and so I think this goes right into what you're saying of what the church is going to look like in the future, because it certainly can't look like what it looks like now if, if what we're witnessing is, is really true, that we're watching all these people get free and really start embracing the gospel. That's not a popularity contest. That's, that's not going to win you huge crowds and stuff, it, at least of people who are, are um, unwilling to, to forgive and lay down their lives for one another and, and let go of, of their, their love for violence and vengeance. So, so I'm going to leave a certain seminary unnamed. When they started out, they were very oriented toward ministry of the Word of God. Okay? Then as they started growing, um, they, decided, they, they made a shift. It was all about, oh, we're going to be all about growing. And so it was, how do you know, how do you grow the seminary? And you bring in a department of church growth, and you bring in a department of missions, and you bring in a department of this and a department of that. And pretty soon, anybody going to seminary, there's that little basic core cu curriculum, like I mentioned last week, that you get. But other than that, it's all uh, haphazard as to whatever you're going to get. There's nothing core at all about what you all, if your graduating class is going to affirm. You know what I'm saying? Nothing core there. No Nicene Creed. Nothing to lay. Nothing to go back to. And so this seminary has become quote so culturally relevant that it's to, for for my money. It's I wouldn't recommend anybody to go there, even though it was my favorite seminary to recommend people to for 25 years. I wouldn't recommend anybody go there now. It's a it's a shadow of its former self. Wow. And it's interesting because I think that um, you, you read the stats on pastors now, and I, I wish I had them in front of me to prepare for this, but it's it's really ugly, you know, just on, on um, the, the amount of stress they carry, the number of hours they work a week, um, if, if they could leave, I, I mean, it's like 70%, you know, how, who said if they could leave, they would they would leave, <laughs> it sounds like school teachers, but, uh, you know, the, the stats are just, just so high up there, and it makes me wonder how much of that is that we've created something false about what their job description is. Precisely. You know? <laughs> exactly. And we have to have. Yeah. Because if my job is to be loved and grow something, then then that's that's going to put an enormous amount of pressure on me. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, I think, you know, and I appreciate the, the adjustment there, uh, Michael, that... Um, the motivation can't for a pastor can't be well. I just want to help people, um, and 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 what you said is is right. Well, then go into counseling or you know or marriage and family counseling or something. You know, yeah. don't don't go into pastoring. But um, not but um, in that I I'm I'm listening to what you're saying and and I really 
appreciate that. Jesus said some very hard things. And in things he said, people left. They're yeah. like, I'm, I'm done with this dude, you know. It's like, and you know, one place, uh, you know, I, I really like it. And, and uh, he said, you think I came to bring peace? I didn't. I came to bring a sword, you right. know. And, and we have in, in so many pulpits around, around the world, really, now, because Western evangelical uh, influence has influenced pulpits around the world, let's face it. Um, but we have exactly what the, the Bible talks about. We have men and women filling the pulpit that do nothing much more than just tickle ears. Uh, how, how can you have your best life now? You know, that type of thing. And, and it's like, uh, you know, just do the best that you can. Stuff you, you know, I don't know what part of your own righteousness is filthy rags. Uh, <laughs> counters that do the best you can right now, you know. But at any rate... You're right. If we preach the gospel, you could, you're going to have people rising up and saying, "Hey, uh, that's not what I was taught. That's not what I think Jesus. That's not what I think it's all about." And it's like, well, I'm I'm sorry, it's not what you think it should be about. But let's go to the Word of God. Here's what the Word has to say on this subject. You know, here's the way you're supposed to live your life. And and you know, teaching the Word. Even, Michael, what you're talking about, uh, have mentioned several times, just a, a just an understanding on the sacraments is so different than, uh, you know, the, you know, like we talked about last week, that little Dixie cup with the, the tab that you pull off of it, to, you know, get us through yeah. COVID, you know, or, well, it's not a big deal because it's just some symbolism anyhow. And it's like, wait a minute, have you ever read the Bible? Have you ever <laughs> looked into what the Lord says this is? I, he, at no point did he ever say this is just a symbol that you do on the first or the third Sunday of every month, you know, after you afflict your soul. right. <laughs> <laughs> totally. And sometime I really want to go down that avenue. I just, I, I, I don't want to jump down that too far right now because I'll take us too off course. Um, but I did want to point out when, when you guys are talking about preaching the gospel and Jesus saying hard things, I, I want to clarify something because some people listening to this might think of, you know, you get a lot of them, uh, especially here in the Bible Belt, you know, strong preachers, yeah, you know, Jesus said hard things. And then, you know, they preach fire and brimstone and God's going to get you and, and yeah. people don't like it. And, and that's completely missing the point. The hard okay. things, the hard things that, that Jim and Michael are talking about are that, the truth is most of us would go, Jesus is too loving. He's too kind. He's, he's not out to burn my enemy. He's not out to destroy my enemy. He's not out to throw that guy I hate into hell. And that's where we get offended and want to walk out. It's not, it's not the thing of God's going to get you turn or burn, you know, that kind of thing. It's, it's the other. It's the thing that, because what, what, what I'm talking about, the heart, the preachers um, who preach those messages, fire and brimstone stuff, that's the tickling of the ears. Because we like that. That goes right along with our human nature. If you tell me my enemy is going to get it, well, that doesn't cause any change in me. I'm, I'm fine with that. But if you tell me, no, God loves and forgives your enemy and you need to do the same, now I'm offended. 
That's precisely right. Yep. The uh, Hellfire Brimstone Preachers, they love to misuse just about any text that's out there. Let's face it, here's the bottom line. The entire Protestant tradition is loaded, I mean loaded, heavy laden down with bad sacrificial interpretation. I, you know, the Catholic tradition's its own thing, and I let my Catholic theologian friends deal with their tradition, right? But the Protestant tradition, which is my tradition, I can look out across the landscape, and what do I see? Sacrificial thinking everywhere. I don't see the gospel. I don't see this incredible grace and love. I don't see this life that becomes actually transforming for me, not because... I mean, I'm, as I listen to Jim, when Jim talks about sins, I understand Jim to be talking about little peccadilloes, like, you know, uh, did I yell at the wife? Did I jerk off in the bathroom? Whatever. I mean, anything, whatever it is, you know. I mean, it's like a little sin is these peccadilloes, and I can resist. That's not sin to me. That's None right. of that is sin to me. And so, in this sense, just like where we're defining church, we're defining redefining Christ, we've got to redefine sin. We've got to redefine sin. We've, everything has to be redefined. Where does it get redefined from? It starts at the cross, where all definitions of God have to start. Exactly. Yeah, and, and, and I love when you were talking about my tradition. You're talking about Protestantism, and, and that just sparked something in me, because I realized, you know what? That's my tradition. I grew up in that. I grew up in that from a little kid, you know, long line of Baptist family and stuff. And, and I realized something. I love those people. And I know you guys would say the same thing. And, and it occurred to me, you know, because a lot of people go, when you, when you talk this way, it's because you're so hateful and you, you know, you hate the church or whatever. And I'm realizing that it's like, no, it's the opposite. All three of us, the reason we do this mm -hmm. is we, we've been exposed to those traditions. This is the world we were exposed to and immersed in. And we love these people. We we're, we count ourselves as one of you, having walked, rubbed shoulders with you. And that's why we do these podcasts, because we want to see people get untangled from the stuff that's been hurting them in, in these these um, teachings and, and traditions that have been just messing us up. Yes. And I, I, I think, um, you know, talking about Protestant tradition, I don't necessarily think, okay, you know, like, I'm a Protestant, like I think that every day or something, but I am, I, you know, I mean, and and our history is not a nice history. Yeah. Our history, Protestantism, has not done a very good job of representing who the Lord really is. So we start out by putting a cross on our, on our shield and go out and start slaughtering people our enemy you know and and now we you know we carve a cross in our in our glock you know and, and you know it's like well i sanctified that sucker because i put a cross on it you know or whatever you know you know and you know michael you you talk about when I say sins, uh, you know, I'm talking about a little infractions or whatever. And, and yeah, sometimes I am, but, uh, it, it's going to be an interesting podcast. The, 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 uh, day that we take on the subject of sin, uh, it's, well, I, uh, obviously it's a whole lot more than just little infractions. Yeah. Well, if we're going to take on sin, I think we ought to have laboratory exercises. <laughs> Okay. It's really sin, you know, <laughs> or or archery exercises or something. Yeah, 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 right. 
Yeah. Oh man. Well, it's funny because I being here in Texas, that uh, that that Glock with the cross on it, that that's a little too close to home, Jim. That's that's uh, that's right here in my backyard. I'm telling you. And, and and it's funny because things we would make jokes about, man. It's it's real here. You know, guns, yeah. God, and football. You know, that's yeah. that's the thing here. Yeah. Uh, pretty much in that order. I think football ranks top though above God. So in Texas, but maybe. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, this is this is a very hard place for, the, I mean, you want to offend a crowd, um, come to Texas and preach the gospel of the Prince of Peace. Oh, I mean, yeah. you're, you're, it's funny that the state that, you know, so sure they're in the Bible Belt and, and following Jesus and so proud that they can now pray in schools in Jesus name and everything. And, and oh, my gosh, you bring the Prince of Peace here. You will you will start a riot. It always does. It always does. What'd they do with the Anabaptists when they brought that message? What'd they do with Dr. King when he brought it? I mean, yeah. listen, the moment you bring the message of the gospel, which is about laying down your arms, you know, uh, boy, the world doesn't want to hear it. It wants nothing to do with it. Nothing. Yeah. And, and I, I think, and, and Michael, you brought this out different ways. It's It's so much more than just laying down your physical arms. Correct. It has everything to do with the whole approach you have towards humanity. Yes. And it isn't even waiting until they transgress against you so that you can show how godly you are. I'm I'm above that. I'm going to forgive you. It's actually a, it's it's a it's a conversion to a to a mindset to a heart towards humanity. The heart really of our father yes that that goes beyond forgiveness it goes beyond uh, a nonviolent platform it goes into the very heart of what love itself is and I, I i think that's our gospel is teaching and preaching what love really is it's not social justice necessarily it's not humanism it, you know, it's so much more than that. It's actually, uh, I like to think of it as, as being a real fulfillment of the scripture that says, henceforth, we know no man after the flesh. Once we knew Christ that way, now we don't know him, even him that way any longer. And it's like when I look at humanity, I don't look at them through my eyes, my human eyes. I really look at them through the eyes of Christ, through the eyes of God who was in Christ reconciling that world to himself. And so I look at humanity as this is somebody that God is passionately in love with. I don't care whether they acknowledge it. It doesn't matter whether they uh, they can be standing on the street corner yelling curses at God, but it doesn't taste how, change how God feels about them, so it can't change how I feel about them. Right. Well, you know, the curses of the ungodly can sound more pious in the ears of God than the hallelujahs of the pious. Mmm, I like that. That's Luther. Wow. Mm. Mm. Very cool. Yeah, we, we had a very interesting Thanksgiving conversation because it was just the three of us, my little family here. And uh, 
we, we were talking about the very thing that we've talked about the last couple of weeks about how Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. And we're really focusing on the know not what they're doing. And, and it goes right along with what you were saying, Jim, about not seeing them after our own eyes after, but looking at them through God's eyes where it's like he sees it as sin is like a disease infecting us rather than it being who we are and what defines us. Mm-hmm. And, and so, but, but it seems to me that, that leadership, getting back to the subject of leadership, is, is just what you guys are talking about. It's, it's teaching people to walk that path. And, and to me, a leader is somebody who's been down that path been down that path of ways, not just knows about it through head knowledge, but they've been crucified. They've been scapegoated. They've, they've been on the receiving end of that, and they've learned to forgive, maybe not beautifully and perfectly, but they've learned to forgive and, and, and pass through that, and so they can show others the path to walk. In the early church, when they practiced the process of discipleship, at least according to Aaron Milovich in his big fat book on the Didache, um, probably the most exhaustive book of research on this. Uh, his argument is there was always a mentor. And so you had a mentor-mentee relationship. And discipleship, if somebody wanted to join the, quote, church, that mentor-mentee relationship would be established, and that person would learn how to live the Christian life first. What does that involve? Love your neighbor as yourself. Forgive 70 times 7, yada, 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 on and on and on. Then after they'd done that for one year or two years or three years, after they'd practice it, then would come the question, is this how you want to live the rest of your life? And if the answer was yes, then there was baptism. Then there was entry into the church. Then there was given the right to, the right to have holy communion with the congregation of the saints. Not, it, it was, it, it, that person practiced this Jesus lifestyle before they decided to take it on. And we've reversed it in the church. We've sort of come in, say the prayer of salvation, and if you want to be discipled, well, okay, maybe fine. Or we've done if come in, get saved. Now Jesus, make him the Lord of your life, and here's all the laws and the rules and the regulations, and like Jim has just waxed eloquent about in the last several weeks. No matter how you slice it or dice it, we've got the whole thing backwards right now. And so what you and I and Jim are having to look at is we're looking at this old house and realizing there ain't much left there that can be rehabilitated. And we're going to have to blow it out of the water and we're going to have to remove the concrete and we're going to have to rebuild the platform. Yes. Now, now what about this? Because I know this is one of the things that causes the urgency on, okay, we'll, we'll disciple them after. We got to you know, get them in, get them saved, and then, and then we'll, we'll do the discipleship thing. And even though the discipleship thing is very different than what you're talking about. It, the root of that is that well, well, if we don't get them saved real quick, they're going to go to hell. Yeah, so, well, so there, there's the problem, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, seriously, it's it's just just nothing but a problem. This this transactional, awful, sick gospel of the of Christendom. I think, uh, Lauren, I've thought about this a lot. By the by the way, um, I don't know if you know it. I think it's Iraq is actually practicing that same. Uh, uh, methodology of um, matter of fact I, ro- I watched a video and, and a couple of the guys that were uh, kind of interviewing them said some of the best evangelists some of the, the, the most effective people 
in bringing others to a decision after a year or two of being discipled into Christ mm-hmm. are prostitutes and drug addicts and yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know whatever because they're still in that journey also with a mentor right. and right. and they're the mentee in one relationship but in another they're a mentor well it's it's the same principle as alcoholics anonymous one hand up one mm-hmm. hand down. yeah and i i think it's uh uh you know when i when i first uh kind of returned back to the the faith of, of my youth after a hiatus for a few years the idea right then that was very prevalent was uh the late great planet earth uh you know five within five years we're all, we're out of here baby so we need to get people as saved as many as we can snatch them from the clutches of hell and uh you know this isn't the podcast probably to get into that we're really talking about church leadership but uh but I want to say, at that time I was 19, 20 years old. I'm 72 now. You know, generation after generation after generation is like, you know, especially since uh, our our good friend Darby with the dispensational truths uh, convinced everybody that, you know, it's going to happen in, in a twinkling of an eye momentarily, you know. Uh, but... Hey, let's let's get off that kick, and let's get, let's get lined up with the head of the church, who is Jesus, who knows how to bring people in. He was the one who said, "It's an interesting thing. I've heard people use this in every context that has nothing to do with what Jesus is talking about." Uh, somebody's thinking about you know, buying a, a house. Well, you better count the cost, brother. You know, somebody thinking about getting married. Well, you better count the cost. You know, it's a, Jesus said, count the cost. He was talking about following him, him. He was talking about discipleship. If you want to follow me, you better count the cost. And I think, you know, earlier in, in our discussion, I, I was thinking a true leader is is someone who has paid a price a true leader has scars you know and mm-hmm. i i i sometimes want to ask a guy you know show me your scars right you know uh there's a saying it's kind of corny but in a way i get it it's like i i, I don't trust anybody that doesn't have have a limp <laughs> you know and yeah. you know and it's it's like it's this, it's the same thing about what we're talking about. It's it's like it's going to cost you to follow Jesus. It doesn't cost you anything to be a Western evangelical. No, you know, no. Uh, uh, um, unless you're in a church that extracts a tithe out of you, that might cost you there. But <laughs> but other than that, it doesn't cost you anything. But to be a follower of Jesus is going to cost you. So uh, to take time to walk in relationship with people and to begin to let them know what the, the cost is. What is the high calling of being a son or a daughter of Jesus Christ? To be a disciple. What's that calling about? 
before you put on them, say, say this simple prayer. Follow me. You know, repeat after me. Hallelujah. Now you're a Christian. And now I'm going, now that you've made him Savior, let me tell you about how to make him Lord. It's like, I don't even know where we got that idea. Well, we got it because we, we did it backwards. Yes. Yeah. We did it, yeah. We did, we've just done this whole thing backwards. And it, again, you know, I, it, this is the hardest part because here we have listeners out there and they have existential choices to make. Do I go to church Sunday? You know, what am I getting? I mean, what am I getting out of it? That's a very consumer-oriented mentality. But I think you're going to see a, a massive decline in church attendance once uh, in the next two years, once the economy collapses, you're going to see a decline in church attendance on the one hand and a rise in superstition on the other. Hmm. Christian superstition. Okay. Interesting. Because um, I, I don't know why my mind immediately went back to right after World War One, how the same thing happened. That, that you had seances and everything just That's going right. crazy. But yeah. I, I can't make the. I'm trying in my mind to make the historical connection between the two, if there even is one. Of, uh, was it just because people back then were just so cynical about the way things were? or No, it's because once you, once you have seen a dissatisfaction with organized religion, like we saw it at, after the war, people still need to have rituals by which they organize the divine in their life. And a lot of those rituals are very superstitious, like don't step on a crack, break your mother's back kind of thing, you know. Uh, all the things that people do when they become very OCD about little rituals in life. Okay. It's like it's like if Jim, you know, doesn't wash his right hand first before his left before a Washington football game and they lose, it's because he washed his hands wrong, right? You know how we do. You know how we do, right? It's true. I I have a dumb tradition, I have to admit, superstition, that if I go to a game, my team will lose. And so if I want my team to win, I can't go to the game because every time I attend a game, my team loses. <laughs> That's one way to save a lot of money, though, Lauren. It, it is. It works well. Lily hasn't fought me on that one for some reason. <laughs> but... Uh, but on the on the subject of leadership, um, great thoughts, you guys, and I and I think um, I think it's interesting because on the one hand, it's kind of like basically we're talking about is the goal to, to prepare people to escape, or is the goal to prepare people to make the world a better place, in the sense of of being walking in peace, loving your neighbor, and and see the one costs me. Because I may die in the process or be persecuted in the process or outcast in the process of loving my neighbor and being a peacemaker. But if I'm just escapist, then I can just be, you know, a decent guy and punch my ticket and I'm going to heaven. So there's there's really no cost involved. I, I, I wanna I wanna say something at the kind of at the conclusion of this and last week's uh, conversation. I don't have a problem with a group of people who enjoy getting together, who want to learn the ways of Christ better, and because they're too big to fit into a living room or whatever, they want to rent a building, and they want to have certain times when they do get together. I don't have a problem with them recognizing somebody who has, as you were saying, Lauren, 
walked in this journey quite a bit longer than they have, being the person who uh, speaks more often than others, uh, even if it's an open forum or whatever, I don't have a problem with any of that if what's going on there is what Michael's talking about, is true discipleship into Christ. If, if that person, whoever they are, or group of people that we're going to call leaders, are really teaching the ways of Christ and are teaching people to be followers of Christ rather than, uh, you know, a religious system or a structure, um, then I have no problem with that. And if you want to, if, if for lack of a better term, although I think it's, it's uh, a bad practice to do, but if you want to slap the name church onto that and say, well, this is my church, I'm not going to come in and rebuke you for using that term. Uh, you know, fine, it's your church. You know, uh, that's fine. But where I, where I have a problem, and, and I wouldn't take on this whole thing of the organized, structured church, but where I have a problem is where we make a religion out of it and we only, we only meet with people who agree with us. We only allow the guy up front to speak the things that we agree with. Uh, I've been in a denomination, uh, grew up in a denomination where if they preach something that the denomination or the congregation don't agree with, uh, they have what my dad used to call the Saturday Night Massacre. <laughs> they start calling each other. They have a vote by proxy over the phone and they vote the pastor out. And then Sunday morning who walks in and the head deacon says, oh, this is your last Sunday here. You know, it's oh, yeah. like over one wow. message, you know, wow. and, and, and that's what I have a problem with. I have a real problem with stuff like that. Yeah. And, you know, it's a, you know, so lest somebody think, oh, well, they're, they're on a campaign against any, any kind of organization, any kind of meeting, any kind of a building. No, I'm not against that. I'm against what we do that doesn't represent Jesus, that does not represent raising up disciples after the Lord. Basically, we're against Christian stupidity. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm, I'm absolutely serious about that. Yeah. that I am against Christian stupidity. Yes. I, I concur with both of you. Amen. <laughs> that, that was a very well said, Jim, and uh, also Michael, very well said. I agree. and. Uh, great conversation you guys on leadership and man just through this conversation i saw there's a lot of avenues we have yet to cover and so uh, i'll be curious to see what we decide to talk about next week um until then this has been lauren rosser and jim durkin and michael harden signing off we'll see you all next week